The Bob Murphy Show, episode 111. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. We have now finally caught up to my earlier discussions. You may recall back in episode 106, where I talked about how intelligent design would eventually become the public choice school to the natural sciences, that back then I was anticipating my interview with Winston Ewart. Well, the future has now become the present, and you are listening to my interview with Winston Ewart. So let me first read Winston's official bio here. Winston Ewart is a software engineer and intelligent design researcher. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in computer science from Trinity Western University, a master's degree from Baylor University in computer science, and a PhD from Baylor University in electrical and computer engineering. He specializes in computer simulations of evolution, specified complexity, information theory, and the common design of genomes. He's published in several places, and it ends with, but most importantly, he is his niece's and nephew's favorite uncle. Now, I should be clear, I have not independently verified the claims in this bio, so just take that for what it's worth. So what Winston and I are going to talk about is just lay out the field of what is intelligent design, how does it differ from creationism, that sort of thing, and also could you be a believer in intelligent design and also endorse the standard theory of evolution. So that's actually a a nuanced issue and make sure whatever else you take away from this stuff, assuming you're listening to these episodes at all, that's the, the single most important thing I want you to realize, that it is not the case that anybody who believes in ID or the intelligent design hypothesis disputes the types of things that biologists are going to point to and say, there's incontrovertible evidence. A lot of that is just talking past each other. All right, so there's that. And and Winston and I clarify that at the beginning of this interview. Then we go on to discuss two papers that Winston was either a co-author on or a sole author of to just explain, you know, okay, so what do you do besides just saying, oh, it looks like there was design. End of story. Like, no, there's a lot more to it than that. So we, we go through that stuff. What I want to do, though, in the remainder of this introduction is give a little bit of background on William Dembski and the so-called no free lunch theorems that he uses in service of his aim to put forward the design inference. So if you, if you don't care about this, you just want to jump in the interview, feel free to go ahead and advance the uh, slider on this thing. But I think it will help you if I give sort of a study guide to what's coming because Winston and I obviously know this area and we kind of just talk about it glibly. But if you never heard this stuff before, this might help. So William Dembski is one of the heavy hitters in the ID movement. 
And I'm actually in the show notes page. So again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 111 that you're listening to right now. If you want to go get the links, I'm actually going to put a review from H. Allen Orr, who is a biology professor at the University of Rochester. I'm going to include that because it's a, it's a it's a really good book review, but it's it's very critical. So H. Allen Orr is representing orthodox biology in a defense of you know the modern neo-Darwinian synthesis. And so this is from the the Boston Review, and uh, it, it's a it's a good review though. It's it's well written and or does a good job of summarizing what Dembski's arguments are. And, and also just in the interest of fairness, since I've been presenting the ID stuff. And, and I see your guys' comments, right? I mean, remember, folks, I used to be what I called a devout atheist in undergrad. And then it wasn't until grad school that I went through some things and had my epiphany and realized, oh, my gosh, God's real after all. So believe me, I totally get some of you just can't understand, geez, Bob's so good on economics. Why is he so dumb when it comes to biology? I understand not only that you think it's unscientific, the ID stuff, but that you think, geez, you know, does the market economy need to have a central planner? Come on, Bob, what's wrong with you? I, I get that. All right. So I I want to link to H. Allen Orr's review partly just to show, yes, I'm aware of these arguments and he does a good job here. I agree. Okay, so to explain, though, who William Dembski is, let me just read from Orr's review. So Orr had started out by saying, oh, originally the anti-evolutionists were just Bible-thumping creationists who just said, hey, look at Genesis. You don't need to worry about all them pointy-headed professors. But now, Orr says, the anti-evolutionist has become much more sophisticated. They've evolved, ha-ha, and they actually are... PhDs who are, have posts at universities and they write books from academic presses. And so now in that vein, he says, Dembski, whose new book, No Free Lunch, is sure to ignite new firestorms over design versus Darwin, is perhaps the most impressively credentialed of the lot. He wields a PhD in mathematics from the University of Chicago, another in philosophy from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. He is also author of seven books, including The Design Inference, a fairly technical work. Da, 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 da. He is also an able writer, a skilled polemicist, and an indisputably bold thinker. Okay, so that's who William Dembski is and his impressive credentials. And also his book, The Design Inference, was from Cambridge University Press, right? So this isn't, you know, some vanity book that he self-published. So... What Dembski does with the no free lunch theorem, so the no free lunch theorems are not Dembski's. It was some other mathematician proved them. And here I'm just going to speak loosely. What they showed was that if you have, let's say, a, a fitness landscape or a, a, something that, that has a score on it and, and you have a function or an algorithm that's searching around trying to maximize the score. So just imagine like a landscape in the uh, XYZ space, you know, with, with valleys and mountaintops and stuff. And imagine you start at some point on the surface of this landscape, and then you're moving around. And what your goal is, is to get as high up on the Z axis as possible, right? To maximize your height, if you view it that way. 
And so what the no free lunch theorems showed was that if you don't impose any constraints on what the fitness landscape looks like, then in general, or perhaps putting another way, averaged over all possible landscapes, no search algorithm can outperform any other. All right. So like a, you know, one search algorithm might just might say random, you know, like it, it randomly chooses what the movements are and it could be negative in the X, Y, Z directions. And then it moves that amount and then checks to see, Oh, are we higher or not? That that would use to, you know, random algorithm, a different algorithm might say, move a little bit in one direction. And then if you go higher, then keep going that same way. But if you go down, then back up. Okay. And so if you have an algorithm like that, you're going to at least hit a local maximum if the landscape is smooth and continuous. Okay. So that's the kind that's the idea. But the point being, so if, if the landscape is smooth and continuous, then the algorithm that kind of takes little baby steps. And then if it, if it has a slight improvement, just keeps going until the improvement stops. That's presumably going to outperform random search, at least, you know, averaged over thousands of trials or in expectation, but averaged over all possible landscapes. So when you, if you're thinking of, what do you mean? Like there's lots of mountains? No, no, no. I mean like, what if there's no connection whatsoever between like where the point is that represents the ground, if you will, and then, you know, the adjacent point, what, what if it's not anywhere near it? If you get what I'm saying. Okay, so don't impose any constraints on what the landscape has to look like. If it could just be a bunch of different points that have no relationship whatsoever, then random search is just as good as, you know, the thing where you take baby steps and then just keep going. All right, so that's what the no free lunch theorems established. And they had nothing to do with biology. That was just like with search algorithms. All right, and so then William Dembski took those theorems and he applied it to a biological context in the arguments over evolution and design. And uh, his point was this. So again, I'm paraphrasing. What Dembski argued was he said, okay, in the standard debates over this stuff, the proponent of design, the person who looks at the incredibly complex structures, even just in a, in a cell, let alone, you know, a, a large organism, you couldn't just explain that by mere mutations. It would be too improbable, right? To just say, oh yeah, there was a bunch of mutations that happened and that's how this thing came to be the way it was. And so the objection to that or the response to that from the standard, you know, Darwinian biologist is to say, no, you idiot. It's not just random chance, it's random chance acted upon by natural selection. So yeah, there's random mutations over time and then they accumulate because of natural selection. And so Dembski was saying, okay, so we can formally model that as a search algorithm. And as the no free lunch theorems inform us, averaged over all possible fitness landscapes, there's no reason that random mutation plus natural selection would search the fitness landscape and arrive at a higher point on the fitness scale than just random exploration. You know, an algorithm that just randomly moves in a direction. And so Dembski's point was, if you agree with 
us, the ID community, that just random mutations couldn't possibly explain the apparent orderliness of the structures we see in modern biology, well, then you don't rescue your explanation by falling back on, oh, it's not, it's not mere randomness, it's randomness aided by natural selection. That it's only if the fitness landscape is of a certain kind or has certain constraints on it that what you were saying would make sense. Because in general, a priori, if we didn't already know anything about it, you wouldn't have expected random mutation plus natural selection to outperform just random searching the fitness landscape. All right, so that's that's the idea. So that's what that's what he's talking about. If you want to see more of that, again, this the review by H. Allen Orr is actually fine. He does a good job of summarizing what the argument is. And of course, I'll I'll see if I can find something from Dembski himself without you having to buy the book. All right, so that's that's the background you need, and then Winston and I will then talk about it. But we didn't spell it out, and so I wanted to give you that that background. So, without further ado, here is my discussion with Winston Ewart. Winston, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Uh, thanks for having me. So why don't we uh, let you introduce yourself briefly to the listener just to sort of lay a foundation as to, uh, we're going to be talking about intelligent design theory or ID. And so just what's, what's your credentials? And also, if you want to throw in something too, just to reduce their suspicion to let them know that you're, you're one of the good guys in terms of the battles for liberty. <laughs> uh, all right. So basically, first and foremost, uh, the truth is I'm a computer nerd. And that has somewhat accidentally led me to becoming involved in intelligent design. Uh, the way that actually happened was that I read the book, The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins, and he has a little computer simulation in there. And that fascinated me as a computer nerd. And so I got interested in evolution and intelligent design, starting from that point of looking at these computer simulations. I grew up in a Christian home and... So that led me to be uh, skeptical of the evolutionary theory, and that led me to doing sort of an analysis of these simulations from the perspective of intelligent design. Uh, this would eventually lead me to going to Baylor University, where I worked with William Dembski and Robert Marks, and there I got a PhD pursuing intelligent design research in that kind of field. Okay, what was the actual field in, you know, the, the formal field? So, uh... I got a master's in computer science and a PhD in electrical and computer engineering. Okay. Uh, which always confuses people a little bit with the intelligent design thing because they think that's not what intelligent design is about. But I very much take a very computer nerd perspective on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, now, also, like knowing that I'm, I'm one of the good guys in terms of trying to make your podcast people like me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm actually was born in Grove City. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was studying Austrian economics at Grove City College. So I have, you know, basically from birth, a history of being on the side of free markets and Austrian economics and all that and learned a lot of that from my dad growing up and I'm still very much of that persuasion today. Okay, great. All right. So let's jump right into the good stuff here. So intelligent design theory or for one thing, do people just refer to it as ID or is that like 2005? Because I know back when I was looking at it, people were calling it ID, but is it, do they just say the whole phrase now or is it just still ID? <laughs> I've not thought about that. Um, certainly people do use ac the acronym sometimes. Okay. Right. Uh, I know you just see it as zeros and ones, but I mean, you know, people who use it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I can't tell. <laughs> um, okay. So 
I think for the average person who, you know, they don't, they're like, yeah, well, that's, that's like creationism, right? And so, so for one thing, let's formally define the distinctions between those various similar terms, but, and then also, and then we'll go into, okay, is that a distinction without a difference? But, but for right now, just strictly speaking by the definition, what's, what's intelligent design? How is that different from biblical creationism? Uh, right. So or, I would or creation say, science. I guess that's the thing too. Is is creationism and creation science are those different things? I'm not even sure what the answer is on that one. Um, yeah. So this can be a bit of a complicated field, and no two people will probably define the terms quite quite mm-hmm. the same way. So the way I would say it is, intelligent design is saying that there is an intelligent design to the universe, and that's a very broad category. Uh, it might be sort of like saying that you're in favor of free market economics. There's a lot of things that fall into there. You've got Austrians in Chicago and probably even Donald Trump would think of himself as being in favor of free market economics. So there's a wide variety within that. But intelligent design is the big tent that incorporates all of those things. And that's somewhat distinct, perhaps, from the intelligent design movement, Mm -hmm. which sort of a principal decision to say, firstly, we're not going to fight over the things we disagree on. Everyone within the intelligent design big tent says we're going to focus where we agree on the design in the universe and in life and not over these secondary issues like universal common ancestry or the age of the earth and that sort of thing. And that we're going to focus strictly on the scientific arguments and not do things like appeal to what the Bible says. Okay, so let's see here. Whereas creationism means does that so yeah go ahead like for example so what is creationism then yeah yeah so creationism uh typically is sort of a bible-based belief people read the bible in particular the early chapters of genesis and it seems to be making some historical claims about what happened at the beginning of the universe or the world and they argue from that 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 is what actually happened okay so anybody tell me if you so anybody who's a creationist also is an intelligent design theorist or believer in intelligent design, but not necessarily vice versa. Yeah, that would be more or less correct. Okay. And strictly speaking, though, just for, again, we're going to get folks, don't worry, into the, the really good stuff, but I just want to make sure we yeah. set the set the lanes up properly here or whatever. Strictly speaking, an intelligent design theorist, especially if they think the designer is God, thinks God ultimately created everything, but is the term creationism more narrowly reserved for people who believe in like the six-day creation of the Genesis account? Uh, okay, so, I mean, so there are people who call themselves like older creationists who don't think okay. mm-hmm. six-day creation, and so they are not. Now, they are still sort of operating on, you know, the Bible says this, they just have a, a somewhat different interpretation. Okay, of, like maybe it's a bit meta, or, you know, maybe they call it a day, but, you know, if this, before the sun existed, how what's a day, that kind of stuff? That that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. So that, that would still be creationists. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in the intelligence design movement don't like the term creationism, and they react negatively to it, uh, because they associate it with, you know, not making scientific arguments, but right. making... A sort of religious argument and appealing to the text. And they want to say, no, we believe this because the science is there as opposed to we believe this because mm-hmm. some text says so. Now, can I push you on that one? Is it so much that they're saying this is why we believe it or is it they're more saying let's not give our critics the idea that you have to reject science and just trust in blind faith? You get what I'm saying? In other words... Um, uh- this depends which particular intelligent right. design okay. person you're, you're talking about. Some of them are completely happy to say, 
I'm a creationist. So I would actually fall in that category. I would be happy to say I'm a creationist. Right. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe the Bible says this. But I want to also be fair. Like, I don't think I can defend every aspect of the biblical account as being, yeah, science shows us clearly this is true. Right. Uh, I think it is true, and I think that the science clearly shows us at least that the universe and life is designed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I want to be clear what I think I can support scientifically and what I think, okay, no, I'm here. I appeal to natural revelation Mm -hmm. to not natural revelation, special revelation to say other things about the world. And okay. Um, So a couple other terms here just to get the territory down. Evolution is a broad term. Is it, I think it's more useful perhaps to narrowly focus on the hypothesis of common descent, just to say what it is. You know, in other words, like, because evolution is kind of a broad term, like climate change. Like <laughs> even, you know, Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh agreed that the climate changes, but but when someone calls them a climate, so same thing with evolution. I mean, there's a sense, a vacuous sense in which who could deny that things evolve over time. But yeah, so, um, so is it perhaps, can you, so the, the, narrow, the narrower claim of the theory of common descent is, is that, what's more of a uh, in contention? Like, is that, is that so, a, a better way of sharpening what the dispute like is? I think there are really three issues okay. that tend to get conflated together. Okay. Uh, the first being the age of the universe, mm-hmm. particularly for Christians, that's a big issue over interpretations of Genesis. Uh, the second issue being universal common ancestry, the idea that all life forms ultimately descend from, I mean, in theory, it's, at least traditionally, it's like a single cell Today, life's more complicated, and they say maybe that's not quite the correct thing. But the basic idea, everything is genetically related back through the descent process. Mm-hmm. Uh, third issue is Darwinian mechanisms, that everything we see around us was produced by natural selection and random mutation. Okay. And so those are really the three big issues, I think. Uh, some people tend to conflate them and call them all evolution, and so you have to be mm-hmm. really careful what particular right. thing you're – going to argue about or even with the more uh sloppy treatment is some people will call that science versus non-science right like the uh um, yeah. the one guy with i forget the guy's name now but he, he titled his book science on trial when it was like no people arguing against the theory of common descent or something you know what i mean like it was he was saying if you're against this the orthodox interpretation of Darwin, neo-Darwinism, then you're against science when, no, the people were making scientific objections. Anyway, I'm getting a field, far field here. Um, okay, so let's see. Do the, I mean, so logically, there could exist someone who, because of the scientific or, you know, maybe, uh, and when we say scientific, we can include arguments from computer science, and that's why your work is so interesting, is that, you know, you're bringing in concepts and techniques from computer science. But uh, strictly speaking, in principle, there could exist someone who believes looking at cells on earth nowadays and says, just using my reason and what we know about how the world works and physics and chemistry, blah, blah, blah. Now information theory, the idea that these things just emerge because of random mutation operated on by natural selection over a billion of years, that seems incredibly implausible. I think there was an intelligence involved in this designing the structure of these cells that we see all around us in life but yet that person could be an agnostic theologically, right? That That's a, and maybe think aliens did it or something. That's theoretically possible, right? <laughs> so, yeah, certainly there are people who do make alien arguments. Um, mm-hmm. They don't typically seem to associate with the intelligent design movement as such. I think they're, they're scared of us being too religious or right. something. It's probably the issue. 
Uh, and certainly there are some people who are, in fact, agnostic, who are involved in the intelligent design community. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew one person who they were very pro-intelligent design, but they were also a Jesus mythicist. What does that mean? Uh, so that means they believe that not only like, is Jesus not God, he didn't rise from the dead, he didn't exist at all. Uh, okay. Like he's like Paul Bunyan or something? Yes. Okay. Or I don't know. I'm gonna get some angry emails from people saying, "No, no, Bunyan's real." Um, okay, so all right, so that's so it's even though in principle, I'm just like staking out the territory. So even though in principle that's possible, just like uh, it Mises you or whatever, we often try to make sure the kids understand the distinction between libertarian political philosophy and Austrian economics. And the way to to illustrate that succinctly is to say, in principle, you could be an Austrian socialist. Right, like in other words, your the knowledge of Austrian economics could let you know that oh well, this will lead to poverty, this will lead to the business. But if your value system is if you're a misanthrope, you say no, I, I like human suffering, I like business cycles, or I like you know there to be a lack of economic calculation. I'm a socialist, I but I also believe in you know the the value free economics of cause and effect is taught by the Austrian school. But yet in practice, there's not too many Austrian socialists walking around. So likewise here, strictly speaking, there could be an atheist even believer in intelligent design. And then if you said, well, who designed it or what? He'd say, he might say, I don't know. All I'm saying is this theory that this stuff all emerged because of random mutation and natural selection, give it enough time. Trust us, this can all work. This is crazy. That That's theoretically possible. Or it could be- yes, it's okay. theoretically possible yeah. and it, it does exist. Right. The tendency right. we found is that people who become convinced of intelligent design typically eventually also become theists. Right. Because I mean, you can theoretically hold the other- combinations, but it's right. not they're plausible. Right. So people tend to eventually become theists mm-hmm. if so, they've accepted yeah. And by the way, let me just mention, sometimes this trips people up. They think it's just pushing the problem back one step. The idea would be if you were an atheist, for example, who thought, no, life on earth, it just, I, I can't say it arose the standard way. You could think aliens intelligently designed the cells on Earth, even though the aliens, if you looked at their cells, you would say, oh, now these cells are pretty simplistic, and I could see how step-by-step they evolved over time. So on their planet, you know, there's no intelligence needed, right? So that's, like, theoretically, you could have that position, so you're not... It's difficult to imagine if life is designed that life... um, There could be a life that wasn't designed, given how the difficulty of the problems that would have to be solved. But in principle, someone could say, no, I don't think so, and they could theoretically believe that. Okay. Um, now, w- one more distinction. So this, am I right in thinking, for example, Michael Behe is one of the pioneers in this movement, right? One of the heavy hitters. And he came up with the idea of irreducible complexity. And his, what was it? The bacterial flagellum? Was that his go-to yeah, originally? Oh. Yeah. And so just for the listeners, so it's, he like looked at this thing and he's like, I'm looking at the structure of this and it's a very relatively simplistic life form, you know, bacterial flagellum. And he said, look at this thing. That's, that's an outboard motor. Or, you know, he, like he's looking at the structure of this very you know, simple organism and yet there was a lot of complexity already built into it. And so his phrase or notion of irreducible complexity means there's like a bunch of different things all working together that if you took one of them away, the whole system would be crippled or not work very well at all. And so the idea that each little component could have evolved step by step, that he was saying like all along the way, each, as you move closer towards the current design or structure, it would not have conferred a marginal advantage in terms of reproductive fitness. And so the the point being like, why would evolution have gone down this path, right? So that that's the idea. 
Um, so hence irreducible complexity. You can't break it down to a series of simpler step-by-step parts, each of which convey, confers a bit more fitness. But my understanding is Michael Bay, he, at least the last, when I was looking at this stuff 10 years ago, he was fine with the theory of common descent. Like he, he was okay if like, yeah, there was some supercell way back that just had all the design plans packed into it. And so he would just say that that didn't ar- arise through mere chance. Like that was a, mir- you know, you could say that's a miracle or God did that. But yet in terms of like the f- family trees and stuff of all the organisms to him, it would look like what a standard biologist would say. It's just Bay. He would say, you think it's random mutation and natural selection creating this tree. No way. There's no way that much information could get packed in there in the right ways. Am I in the ballpark of what his view yeah. is? So to be clear, intelligent, when I talk like about the three issues, yeah. you've got the age of the earth, common descent, and Darwinian mechanisms. Intelligent design really only disputes the third. It says, you know, life didn't arise by Darwinian mechanisms. It needed to arise by some sort of intelligence mm-hmm. without being specific about when, how, Mm-hmm. That intelligence came into being. So Michael Behe, who's one of the very top leading people in intelligent design, is one who thinks common descent is true. He thinks actually everything is genetically related back to ancestry through these first cells, mm-hmm. all the thing. But he thinks there's an intelligent design that goes along with that. Okay, great. So, and also I should mention that whether partly he's important too, right? Because he was one of the most academically advanced, you know what I mean? Like, do you remember off the top of your head, he was a like a chemistry or something professor somewhere, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he's still a, he's a, I think he might be biochemistry. Yeah, he's I mean, it was something even more specific to what, you know, to be talking about biology right. and evolution. He's yeah. definitely credentialed to be there and he's had tenure, so he's uh, still at Lehigh University right. and, and okay. all that. Okay, great. Yeah, it's kind of like in the climate change stuff where the so-called skeptics or even worse deniers they have a few of their heavy hit, like Richard Lindzen, you know, is at MIT and then uh, Roy Spencer and stuff gets awards from NASA. So it's a bit awkward to say, oh, these guys are anti-science. So it's like, oh, I wonder why NASA gave him an award then. Right. Um, okay, so let's see. Did I, was there anything else I wanted to? Dun, dun, dun. All right, so then why don't we go ahead and and get into this paper here that you, well, well actually one, one other thing. So get, tell us a little bit about William Dembski. Because he's to, when I was doing this stuff like ten years ago, it was Behe and Dembski were like two of the the bigger guns in this movement. So William Dembski's more like coming at it from information and math and philosophy. Yeah. So yeah, William Dembski is one of the big names in intelligent design. Uh, he's now sort of retired from intelligent design, working on other things. But he was sort of a, he's in a math background, and so he brought a real mathematical perspective to questions of intelligent design. Uh, in particular, his original big work was the design inference. And his question was basically, how do we infer design? How do we n- conclude that something is designed? Uh, and part of the question is, well, for it to be designed, it has to be improbable that it would happen by chance. Because uh, the things that, that are likely to happen by chance, well, okay, you didn't really need design to do that. It could have just been random. But his big insight was that randomness was not, or improbability was not enough. Because an example would be if you sort of shuffle a deck of cards and deal out five cards and you get you know, two of clubs, a five of spades, a king of diamonds, etc. The particular hand you got is very improbable because it's unlikely you get that specific hand. And in fact, 
all specific, all like five card hands are equally improbable. So the fact is, if someone deals out a royal flush, you might suspect them of cheating. But someone dealing out just another random hand of cards, it's equally improbable. So the difference isn't in the probability. And Dembski's insight is that what we do is we identify cases where it's both improbable and it follows some sort of independent pattern we call the specification. And so he developed the notion of specified complexity to develop uh, sort of the theoretical underpinning of how we infer design and how we reject sort of chance explanations of events. Okay, yeah. So the, the analogy I had used for that was um, you're driving around and you see uh, license plates and you know, any given one, you could say, oh, the chance of seeing that exact combination of letters and numbers is, you know, it'd be pretty small. Yeah. Probability. But you you don't think all of them were like, you're not sitting there constantly amazed at the miracle. Look, at there's another, look at all of these things that were so improbable. But if you see something that spells out, you know, like, you know, I, I, L-U-V-G-O-R, when Al Gore's running for president, like, I love Gore, you'd say, oh, that person's a Democrat. He's showing his, you know what I mean? Because it's probably not that, the random letters spelled out a recognizable English English phrase like that. So, right. so, so Dembski's where he's trying to like formalize, like, you know, we, we have common sense, like we understand how that works. And in the paper we're going to get here in a minute, he, he uses Mount, or you guys use Mount Rushmore as an example. Like people right. looking at Mount Rushmore know that was designed. There's no way that just winds <laughs> and currents and sandstorms or something and the way the rivers float over the rocks a million years ago carved out faces in the th and yet, it's like, well, okay, but how do you know? You know, so that's what he was coming up with to try to formalize. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Winston, but the point was he was trying to say, he, he was just trying to come up with a framework to say, look at, some of us are claiming when we look at cells, we see design. We say that cannot possibly be just due to randomness and, you know, mindless natural forces or physical forces. And the right. critics are like, oh, well, your lack of imagination is no strike against our theory of blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a billion years. And so he was trying to then say, okay, let's step away from the biology context and just in general, when you see something and you know an intelligence was involved, you know, typically we'd say it was human intelligence for everyday things. He was trying to isolate, you know, what what is the procedure by which we are certain that that thing is designed? And so you're saying he came up with, was it specified complexity? Was that the phrase? Yes. So another, that it's improbable, but also it adheres to this independent pattern that we, you know, already have. And so that kind of captures a lot of, okay. So with that warm up, now you have a paper here co-authored. So it's, you get the first billing here. It's, it's not even alphabetical. Is that because you did the most work? So it's, uh, yes, I did the most work. Okay. So it's uh, Winston Ewart, uh, William Dembski and Robert Marks the second. So the title was algorithmic specified complexity. So you threw in the, the modifier algorithmic there to augment Dembski's phrase. So here, I'll I'll read the abstract and then we can just talk about it in more plain English, but let me just read the abstract here. Engineers like to think that they produce something different from that of a chaotic system. The Eiffel Tower is fundamentally different from the same components lying in a heap on the ground. Mount Rushmore is fundamentally different from a random mountainside. But engineers lack a good method for quantifying this idea. This has led some to reject the idea that engineered or designed systems can be detected. Various methods have been proposed, each of which has various faults. Some have trouble distinguishing noise from data. Some are subjective, etc. For this study, conditional Kolmogorov 
complexity is used to measure the degree of specification of an object. And Kolmogorov is a, named after a Russian mathematician. Yes. The Kolmogorov complexity of an object is the length of the shortest computer program required to describe that object. Conditional Kolmogorov complexity is Kolmogorov complexity with access to a context. The program can extract information from the context in a variety of ways, allowing more compression. The more compressible an object is, the greater the evidence that the object is specified. Random noise is incompressible, and so compression indicates that the object is not simply random noise. This model is intended to launch further dialogue on use of conditional Kolmogorov complexity in the measurement of specified complexity. So before we continue, let me just say to the listeners, you can see here they didn't say, well, we know from Paul that the Bible is true and therefore God created everything. And we don't need to you know, listen to these pointy-headed professors from their universities with all their book learning, right? So that that's what this is. And so now the question is, okay, are you guys really onto something here? Or is this just a bunch of computer jargon and, you know, math jargon? So let me read something from the article and then I'll let you elaborate on it. Uh, In the introduction, you say, Mount Rushmore is qualitatively different from that of a random mountainside. However, quantifying that difference in an objective manner has proved difficult. Both mountainsides are made up of the same material components. They are both subject to the same physical forces and will react the same to almost all physical tests. Yet there does appear to be something quite different about Mount Rushmore. There is a special something about card faces that separates it from the rock it is carved on. And then what you guys say is, this special something is information. Information is what distinguishes an empty hard disk from a full one. Information is the difference between random scribbling and carefully printed prose. Information is the difference between car parts strewn over a lawn and a working truck. So can you speak a bit on just information theory? Because that's something that I could see how before the age of computers to talk about information there might have struck some people as like gobbledygook, you know, especially if they were like hardcore materialists. Like, no, no, the only thing that's real is what you can touch and information is just some abstract blah. But clearly in the age of computer science, nobody can deny that information theory and the study of information itself, regardless of the particular material in which it's encoded, is a thing. So can you speak a bit on that? We do have to be a little bit care- careful with the phrase information theory. Okay. Usually information theory is used to refer specifically to Shannon information theory. Okay. Which is a theory developed by Claude Shannon to uh, a theory basically of communicating, of sending information from one place to another and about, you know, errors come in and how do you correct for those errors? And it's sort of underpinning of all our modern communication technology. Okay. Um, but Shannon information doesn't really try to quite capture what the everyday understanding of information is because it's basically just based on how how much it deviates from sort of a random noise signal. Okay. All right. So how then can you, um, let's see, I, I know it's tricky, the, the, the trade-off between getting too specific or not. <laughs> so I don't know, is there like, is there a way, like, is there a way you can explain this to a lay person? I mean, because some of the examples you use were pretty good. I don't know if that would be um, a way to do it. Maybe just big picture. Can you say what you're doing? What are you trying to do in this paper, I guess? Basically, the algorithmic specified complexity is the same idea as Demsky's specified complexity, except done as if a computer scientist did it instead of a mathematician. Okay. And since I believe that computer scientists have the correct view of the world, uh, I figure that the algorithmic specified complexity version is better. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if you heard the abstract, 
you heard uh, Bob say something about the length of the smallest computer program, uh, and your eyes probably glazed over, and you thought, "Why am I listening to this podcast?" Uh, so the basic just the idea, episode. They're good. They, they like the podcast. Okay, maybe yeah, this so they episode. love the podcast. Yeah. They're not sure why Bob bought this weird person <laughs> on who's obsessed with measuring the length of computer programs. <laughs> the basic idea is. The longer it takes to describe something, the less of a pattern it follows. So things that follow patterns have very short descriptions. So if you want to describe you know, a light that goes on and off, you can just say it goes on and off and on and off and then repeats. Very simple description. But if you wanted to describe something that sort of is uh, a random pattern, the only way to describe it is to record the whole pattern. You can't give any shorter description of it because there's no pattern to exploit in that description. So the fundamental idea of Kolmogorov complexity is to say shorter descriptions indicate more pattern, longer descriptions indicate more randomness. Now, the reason we define it using computer programs is basically just that it gets rid of some paradoxes that exist in human language. A case being, I could say what's, I could say the smallest number that can be described in less than 100 words. Now, that was a lot less than 100 words. But mm-hmm. I just described the number that cannot be named in less than 100 words. So there's a bit of a weird paradox there. Uh, the case being you can't express that as a computer program, so it throws all those paradoxes out of the window. Uh, but if you're not like, nerdy as I am and don't love thinking about the lengths of computer programs, it's really just the length of the description. Uh, and basically the fundamental idea of algorithm specified complexity is you take how improbable something is measured in bits – uh, and that's because as computer scientists, bits are beautiful. And you subtract away the measured again in bits, the length of the description. And the idea is the higher that number is, it means that you had a improbable event with a short description. And that's what indicates that something, in fact, has specified complexity, that it's not just the appearance of random. Whereas if it's small, that either indicates it was highly probable or it doesn't really have any pattern, and that indicates that it's probably the outcome of a random event. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there a way you can... So the other thing that you got going on here is you're saying like if there's access to a certain type of context, and then you guys go through an example using like the Oxford... Like like with, with letters being arranged, then if, if it had the context of the Oxford English Dictionary, are you able to give the intuition behind that? So the basic thing there is when you just look at the length of patterns, that does very nicely for things that are like repeating patterns and such like that. But if you look at something like English text, whether it's the Gettysburg Address, U.S. Constitution, whatever document you have, it's not so easy to see that there's some simple description that you can give there. Uh, But what we say is, well, the reason that is, is because you really only recognize that as information because you already know something. In this case, you already know the English language. And so it only really conveys information to you because you have that context. Uh, On the other hand, if you go and you read, um, say, Arabic, for me, when I see Arabic, it looks kind of like someone was scribbling. Uh, I'm sure that's not what's going on, but I lack the context to understand Arabic. And it would actually be extremely difficult for me to describe Arabic writing I'd seen because I can't do letters, right? If I describe English If I had seen some English text, I could easily say, this is what it said. I could give you the letters because I recognize letters and I can record them. The same is not true if I were reading Arabic. So the idea is your ability to detect information actually depends on which context you have. Okay. 
And so then, so again, there just to the connection of if what we're trying to do is say, how, when you look at something, how can you tell that there was, you know, there's information contained in it or an intelligence arranged this thing in this, in this way, it depends on your context as the observer, right? That yeah. that's like you say, you looking at a bunch of scribbles, you might just have thought, no, that's, you know, the, the wind blew the, the pencil or something or the crayon and it just made the, those marks on there. But someone who can read Arabic would look at that and like, no, that wasn't the win because this actually is like a, a shopping list or whatever, or this is a poem. Okay. So then um, another illustration you give here is what I like about your paper is you, know, you define the concept kind of in broad terms and then you apply it in a bunch of contexts that have nothing to do with biology to sort of warm yeah. the, the reader up to say, okay, that's how this thing works. You know, it's not just a bunch of gobbledygook. Like, okay. And then another one you give is applying it to you know, playing five card poker. And so you're showing that there's a sense in which the, the complexity, so of all the different types of hands, you know, going from, you know, nothing significant all the way up to a royal flush, that the complexity measure is the same, but the frequencies obviously of a royal flush is, is much lower. And so then the, the algorithmic specified complexity scores the way, you know, intuitively you would think that the, that the royal flush gets the highest score a straight flush, you know, a bit lower and so on. And then just, there's no, there's nothing that you would win in terms of a poker hand. It gets a score of zero. So, so that there, so I'm going to ask you to explain if you give any intuition behind it, but the point being you're showing that this definition you've adopted or this technique for evaluating things gives the sensible answer where we kind of know right. what the answer is supposed to be. So when it comes to playing cards, your objective measurement technique or, or the way to assign a score gives the highest score on the algorithmic specified complexity to a royal flush in a hand that's, you know, garbage gets, gets nothing. Even though if you just measured and said for each possible hand, what's the probability of getting that exact hand, it would always be the same. It'd be a really low number. Right. It, we show, yeah, if you, when, by taking into account both factors, we actually get sensible results. And that shows, hey, we seem to be onto something. This does actually seem to work. Okay, great. So then, all right you guys have done all this stuff and then now what's the uh the payoff here and you apply it to folding proteins so can you ex first of all what what does that mean folding proteins what the heck is that proteins are sort of the building blocks of the cell you string a bunch of amino acids together well the cell strings a bunch of amino acids together it becomes a long chain and then what happens is depending on the amino acid it's kind of folds into different shapes uh based on the different chemical properties of the parts of the amino acid and then that has some job in the cell, whether it's part of the cell wall or it's transport or it's for uh, assembling other proteins or whatever it is, it's various jobs. So for the most part, a protein has to fold. There are a few exceptions. But it has to fold into some shape in order to do some job. And as it turns out, almost all sequence of amino acids that you put together will not fold because mm -hmm. it has to have you know, good enough properties to fold to produce that particular shape. And so some work has been done to try and characterize just how rare it is for a protein to fold. Uh, and so the answer is, to, I guess, in lay terms, it's pretty small. Mm -hmm. So the question then is to say, applying algorithm specified complexity to that is say, okay, we know it's improbable that it folds. Uh, but of course, you know, our Darwinian interlocker is going to say, well, yeah, but lots of things are improbable. That doesn't matter. So by applying algorithm specified complexity, I say, well, this is a folding protein. That tells me that, okay, it has a low probability, 
But, you know, all proteins have a low probability. Mm -hmm. Sorry, let me stop you just for a second. Let me just (laughs) use the poker example because I want to make sure people are getting the twofold. So in poker, um, if, uh, you know, we're we're just playing, you know, and especially if we don't, like it's five card, and let's say we don't even, and the guy doesn't draw any cards, and the guy, the other guy deals and you guys are betting and you've got whatever, two pair, and then he puts down a royal flush and up and take your thing. You're probably going to suspect that the guy cheated you. You know what I mean? Because what are the chances? And that's the thing though, because you could say, what are the chances? But then he could say, well, what do you mean? No matter what hand I laid down, the chances are equally absurd that I got that specific hand. So why are you accusing right. me of cheating? And so it's that where you're trying to, okay, well, yeah, it's not merely that your hand was improbable. It's that it was improbable in a certain way, which leads me to be very skeptical that intelligence wasn't involved in the design of the, the construction of your pattern of cards there, your arrangement. Right. Okay, so that, that's, again, just want to make sure we hit that. So now with the proteins, you're, you're so, saying, again, yeah, all protein sequences are improbable. Right. But if it adheres to this independent pattern of a protein sequence that actually folds, that mm. is rare. And so that we can use as part of our description. We can say it's a sequence that folds. And then we have to specify which particular folding sequence it is. But it's a lot easier to say it's this particular folding sequence than it is to say it's this particular sequence out of the set of all sequences. Okay. So by doing that, we can give it a description that is much shorter than the complexity, and thus it gets a large amount of algorithm-specified complexity, showing, yeah, okay, this kind of sequence can't be produced by just random chance. Now, I should clarify an important point here. When you're computing probabilities, it's always based on some assumption about how the probabilities work out. Uh, in that example in the paper, I used uniform probability. I was assuming any amino sequence of amino acids is equally probable. Uh, now, the response might be, well, maybe, you know, there's actually not equally probable. Maybe it's similar to another sequence and thus more likely to have fit into folding. Or maybe certain amino acids are more common than others. So the paper doesn't really try to deal with all the different combinations you could throw at it. Really, I'm just developing the method of saying, when can we reject a chance explanation? And I'm saying, you know, we could certainly reject the explanation that it was a completely random, uniformly chosen amino acid sequence that folded because that's just really improbable and highly specified. Okay, so the punchline being that seeing the the types of folding proteins that are exhibited in modern organisms, that's like seeing a, a straight flush or something. And, and so it's not merely that that's improbable, but also it adheres to this independent pattern. Yes. Okay. And so, and because, like we say, if if someone's just shuffling some cards and then deals themselves a uh, or himself a a straight flush, we're gonna think there was cheating involved. We're gonna say, no, that wasn't just the randomness of you shuffling cards. Come on. Likewise, you're saying, see, this is objective. You know, we we didn't just say how it feels to us. We come up, we came up with a procedure to assign a numerical evaluation. We've done it in these other contexts that have nothing to do with Darwin. And, you know, you can see how it works over there. Now we're doing it in folding proteins. And look at these things are getting high scores. So if you thought this method, we this algorithm we had designed in these other contexts is a decent measurement, if you will, or, or a thing to, de- to detect intelligence or design, well, then it's also this meet this detectors going off when we pointed at folding proteins. Is that basically the idea? That's the basic idea. Okay. So I suppose then 
so out of curiosity, I mean, th- this was this has been published, or this is still a working paper. This is this is published. Number okay. Back. So is it in this engineering in the ultimate? Is that what this this is, yeah. or is that something? Okay. So, so go ahead. Proceedings from a conference I presented at. Okay, great. All right. Um, did has anybody who doesn't believe in ID responded to this? Um. So I've not gotten really direct responses to it because it sort of follows in the tradition of Dembski's work. Uh-huh. A lot of criticism is, was directed at Dembski's work. Uh, a lot of it is tempted to misrepresent what Dembski was saying. In particular, okay. the most common accusation is that Dembski's work was always computing the probabilities uniformly, assuming every possibility is equally likely. But the essence of Darwin evolution says, well, no, not every probability is equally likely. We've got natural selection kind of shifting the probabilities in such a way. Mm-hmm. Dembski's work and my work in that paper really don't try to argue what the probabilities are. They're trying to argue if we have low probability, this is how we get from that to concluding design or at least rejecting Darwinian evolution. Mm. Um, and so it's somewhat – it's a more um, – it's not right. It by itself doesn't really show that the Darwinian story is false. It assumes we have some other way, whether we're appealing to irreducible complexity or some other argument to show it's improbable. And then we see, you know, we say, then we apply the specification to say improbability plus specification equals this didn't evolve. We infer the right explanation is probably that it was designed. Okay. Um, if, yeah, why don't we then at least just, this is probably a good time right now before, cause the last big chunk, I want to jump into your dependency graph of life. And I, so let, and that's kind of a, a whole bunch of other, that's almost like a new module, if you will. So let's, um, folks, you'll see the, you'll see the joke there in a second. So why don't we maybe focus here a bit? Cause I do want to try to entertain, I'm sure there's some listeners who they follow what you're saying and they say, okay, yeah, I can see how this isn't just pure gobbledygook and you guys are trying to, you know, be fair and, you know, not, not invoke your supernatural revelation or whatever, um, or say that the reason we, we aren't listening is because we're all just a bunch of unrepentant sinners. But when it comes to this, they could say, um, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the single biggest objection. I the pushback I've seen against Dembski is to say they're overlooking the fact that, yeah, it's not just random, it's randomness plus natural selection and, and over billions of years, that's kind of what refines it. And so, like with the poker hand, they might say something like, yeah, if someone just from a fresh deck shuffles and deals out a straight flush, but if instead, you know, the cards somehow got filtered through this machine that, you know, like there was a big vat that was blowing cards around and if for some reason there were various tubes and things that, only certain, you know, only hearts could only go into one, like whatever. There was some kind of filter that only let in red versus black. Well, then that right there would explain why you're much more likely now to see flushes. And then if there was something that for some reason made it so that cards that were closer together in number tended to go left versus right, and then that would explain. So if you had a bunch of those different filters and pipes, then when all was said and done, it wouldn't be surprising at the end of that thing if a royal flush popped out or it'd be much less surprising. And yet, so that's kind of the, even as I'm sitting here trying to come up with what they would say, I think I could see the obvious response is, well, that would be kind of a big coincidence if the pipes were designed in that way, wouldn't it? <laughs> hmm. So anyway, yeah. can you comment on that? Like, is that sort of what how these debates proceed? Yeah, so that is sort of the obvious response is the probabilities are shifted, right? And so the thing with specified complexity is, that reduces the complexity, it makes it more probable, and then the specified complexity, as it were, evaporates. 
because uh, specified complexity itself isn't really trying to ask what how probable something is. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you could go and ask, well, we propose these other mechanisms. Then we say there are a variety of, of answers we can give on that front. We can point out things like you allude to the idea, well, that's you know highly complicated and seemingly intelligently designed system for generating royal flushes. Uh, and so we point out that if you're going to say that Darwin evolution does these things, you end up, if you work through what that would mean, that sort of the fitness landscape, um, to use a word which probably is confusing to most of you, uh, the idea of the fitness landscape is that sort of different sequences have different levels of fitness and evolution can kind of be a search engine that's kind of trying to climb up hills in this landscape to get better and better things. But the argument we've made is basically, well, in order for that to actually succeed and at least to succeed at the level we find in life, that fitness landscape has to be as intelligently designed, maybe more intelligently designed than the things we're actually observing. Uh, you could also appeal with ideas like uh, Behe's irreducible complexity, just lots of things look like there isn't going to be any gradual mechanism into them. Uh, and you look at various arguments like that. Or the protein folding is interesting just because the nature of a protein fold is basically you either fold or you don't. There's not like a gradual, this partially folds and mm-hmm. might be something useful. You basically got to hit the fold more or less at random chance. So we would make those kind of arguments to say, no, this is improbable. So therefore, our logic follows. Yeah, let me go ahead and just spell that because I want to make sure some listeners who've never read these debates understand what, what's going on. So the um, the belief, the intelligent design theorist or just the you know man on the street or whatever who looks at how complex and how interlocking and perfectly apparently designed like the human body, just like the human eye or something. Like, well, there's a lot of different parts that come together to make that thing work. Um, you know, and if, there, if you saw an Android that had a similar camera and whatever, you would be sure that, oh yeah, some intelligence designed that thing. But yet the standard bio, biologist response, you know, armed with Darwin's theory and the way it's been augmented and supplemented over time is to say, no, no, it's that you could start with real simple creature organisms and then there's a random mutation. Most of the random mutations are harmful. You know, the thing dies soon without, re- but some of the, once in a, great while there's a random mutation that actually makes the organism more fit given the landscape in which it operates. And so now it's more likely to have descendants. And so that trait now becomes bigger and bigger in the population, more, you know, represented by more and more of the such organisms. And then those beneficial mutations just accumulate over billions of years until you finally see this end thing that you're striking you as being designed. You're just, you're, you have a lack of imagination. You don't see how these random mutations some of which are beneficial, then accumulate. And so with the irreducible complexity, the idea is, okay, but there's some biological structures that they have 19 different things that all need to be present at the same time. If you took any one of them away, the whole thing would be useless. So how could you have started with zero of those 19 things? It's not like the first edition would have made it a little bit better and had you know more offspring. And then the second one's even better and more offspring. And then did it all the way up to the 19th, which really perfected it. No, all along the way, those would have been bad mutations, harmful. It's not. It's only until you had the whole thing going that it conferred an advantage to the organism. Is that basically the argument? Basically, the, the uh, irreducible complexity argument. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. And so then, going back to the the, um, are you, are you familiar with the no free lunch theorems and how Dembski uses those? Yes. Okay. So I let me that let me give my lay, layman summary, and then you 
tell me if it's wrong or whatever or, or sharpen it. So that back when I was really into this, so that's what stuff fascinated me. And this is where Winston, just so you know, when I really concluded, okay, the the defenders of the you know Darwinian orthodoxy are not understanding what the ID people are saying because Dembski was saying some stuff, and then I saw the you know the other people who are arguing saying Dembski's arguments are like written in jello or they were saying real condescending and it was like no i totally get what he's saying maybe he's wrong but and so i feel like how like when i'm like looking at austrians arguing about a priori or something in the average mainstream economist like you don't believe in you know looking at numbers you just going to sit in your corner and do your religious proclamations what are you crazy that's not science so anyway it's kind of like that so in any event um so there was this these things called the no free lunch theorems. I forget who, who discovered it. it wasn't Dembski. It was like, he was yeah, relying well, on some, who was forget, it? Forget one of the guy's name is David Wolpert. I'm forgetting his uh, co-authors. Name. Okay. And so the idea was like, if you have a, like, yeah, like, so let's say you have a landscape. So just imagine folks like a, you know, a surface, like in picture, like in a computer too, because that's what all this stuff is. You've got some, sur- some surface with, you know, hills and valleys. And then what you're trying to do is find the highest elevation. And so, you know, that's the objective. And you're, you're starting somewhere, you know, on the XY plane and you're, or I guess the XYZ plane and, and you're going through and you can just move, you know, any direction you want. And then, you know, what are you going to do to, to scope out and search? And you could have, you know, Oh, keep moving in this direction if you keep going up or whatever. But Oh, what if you hit, what if you just hit a local maximum? What if you, you know, were to go out further, maybe you then hit a mountain that's really close by and you just don't realize it right now you're in the top of a hill. So that's the kind, you know, that's the the thing to be picturing. And of course this is supposed to represent, reproductive fitness, you know, in the actual environment. And so then the the no free lunch theorems were saying something along the lines of if we don't have any conditions, any constraints at all on what this landscape looks like or how it's configured, then any search algorithm is just as good as any other. We have no way of thinking, you know, no way of picking one better than the other. And the way I kind of thought of that was if really what you're saying is all of the different locations of the land in terms of its XYZ coordinate, if there's literally no connection, because probably the listener, when I said picture a landscape, was thinking of a smooth surface that, you know, was differentiable and all connected. If there's no reason for it to be like that, you know, if it's just a, a bunch of different elevations all over the place, then, you know, any search algorithm is just as good as any other one because you have no reason to suppose, like you might be thinking, oh, if I start going up the mountain, keep going up. Well, no, what's a mountain? You know, you're assuming that there's these connected things you know, we're throwing all that out. Don't don't assume the laws of physics hold in this thing. All right. So given that then, Dembski was trying to use that those results and to say, if you're basically trying to argue that, oh no, the, the way these organisms end up so apparently complexly designed nowadays, it's because they relied on billions of years of evolving in this fitness landscape. And that's how they ended up like this. He's saying, in a sense, well, then the, the fitness landscape must have been constructed and or, or arranged in such a way as to yield that outcome. And in general, why would we suppose that? And so it's almost like you're just pushing the, you know, the taking the rabbit out of the cells and putting it back into the landscape. And, you know, it's kind of amazing that it's very improbable that the landscape was such that organisms evolving in this environment ended up you know, having apparent outboard motors on the bacterial flagellum where your eye is so intricately designed. And it, so, okay, I'll stop there. Is that close? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just uh, perhaps to clarify the history here, I went to work with Dembski and Marx just mm-hmm. at the time they were first publishing on the no free lunch stuff. 
Okay. So if you actually look at some of the later papers associated with it, you'll find my name as a co-author there. Oh, okay, great. Um, so I, I worked more on perhaps the more practical end of it where I looked at like various computer models. People come up and they said, hey, this model shows evolution works. And I go and I show, well, let's look at how they design their fitness landscape to make it work. Uh, but yeah, I thought your description there was pretty good. Essentially, yeah, it comes down to, okay, yeah, you can say Darwinian evolution is operating, but if we look at it, that actually doesn't do anything. The whole work, as it were, is done by you've got a fitness landscape that actually facilitates reaching your goal. Uh, where did that fitness landscape come from? And so it really just moves the question back a step mm-hmm. of, okay, what's your explanation for why the fitness landscape is amenable to Darwinian evolution? Right. Uh, and the my analogy to illustrate just that point is always like we send our spaceship out and uh, it sees, you know, it's flying by some moon or whatever from Jupiter and it looks down and the rocks are arranged that say ship crashed help. Like that's what the, how the rocks are arranged and the, they're like, whoa, what, what? clearly they're going to not just say, oh, that's just, you know, random because we know no humans have ever been out here before. That's impossible. They're going to think, you know, maybe they're going to think there's time travel or wormholes, who knows what aliens, but they're certainly not going to look at that and say, that's just random chance. And then, like I say, if they went down and investigated and somebody said, oh, wait a minute, you know what? No, it's not that an intelligence placed these rocks in this pattern to send a message to people above, because you can see there's grooves here in the in the mountain. And so really the wind must have just blown a rock. And then once it fell in this groove, it came and rested just so. And the grooves in the rock or the mountainside are, you know, arranged such that just through gravity and, you know, regular forces of uh, sedimentation and blah, 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 you know, these these rocks would come to fall in this pattern. And so if somebody said that, you know, clearly that wouldn't be explaining the mystery. That would just be changing where the mystery is located. You'd say, okay, fine. Maybe someone didn't physically pick up the rocks and place them down to spell out this message. But whoever carved out those grooves in the mountain did it intentionally and, you know, with a, with a design in mind. Right. It, it probably makes the mystery bigger because it's a way bigger deal to explain this Rube Goldberg contraption to build the message than it would have been just right. to have the message in sure. the first place. So is that a decent analogy for what yes, but yes, is I going on here? Good. Is that you guys are saying, okay, sure, if you want to just attribute it to random mutations and then natural selection works on it still, why is the environment in this pattern or this way to, to yield these things coming out of the other end? Yes. Okay. Um, has anybody, to your knowledge, who's you know defending the orthodox treatment, do they fully get what you're saying? They they see the subtlety there and they say, right, okay. And our response is because I never saw someone who got yeah, that the point. The best uh, response I've gotten out of people is it just is. Okay, sort of like that's an empty question. Why are we here? I don't know, but this is the universe we're in. Um, and like we're multiplying <laughs> entities. Yeah, wh- why don't we deal with that? Do you have a so someone could say with Occam's razor or whatever, like. Yeah, the universe is the way it is. And I don't know, maybe any universe we were in looking around, we'd say, what the heck? This is crazy. You know, who knows? I don't know. How can I say? But we're here right now and you're inventing this God thing. Why don't we just deal with what we have and see if we can explain it without invoking God? Um, I'm happy for you to see if we can explain it without invoking God, but you're going to have to demonstrate it. It's a better explanation. Uh, but the one metaphor I've heard that I think is pretty good there mm-hmm. is if you imagine someone is, uh, they're lined up in front of a firing squad. Mm-hmm. and then you know, the firing squad shoots, but they're still alive at the end. And so their response is, wow, something really incredible must have just happened. But then someone else comes along and says, well, not really, because if you had died, you wouldn't be alive here to see it. So 
it's just the fact that you happen to be in this place that this mm-hmm. happened. Therefore, there's not really any need for an explanation. But something's clearly goofy with that. The fact that it seems improbable still demands an explanation. Yeah, okay, I like that. Hey folks, let's take a break from the discussion to remind you that I am going to be returning to the Soho Forum, this time to debate on whether Christians should support free market capitalism. So I'm going to be arguing the affirmative and Tony Campola is going to be arguing for the negative. So it takes place on April 20th and it's sponsored by the Libertarian Christian Institute. For more details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash debate. And if you end up pulling the trigger, use the promo code Bob, all lowercase, when you register to get a discount on the uh, ticket price. So again, just for in case people missed it, what Winston's doing is he's showing why the conventional sort of agnostic, I don't want to say materialist, because I'm sure many of them, you know, they have philosophy of mind and stuff, but the, the people who say, yeah, you guys can pontificate about why it's so improbable that we're here. What are the chances of life emerging on Earth? And look at it, you know, the moon has to be there to be knocking out asteroids and, and all these improbable things. And the charge on an electron has to be in a very certain range or else cells wouldn't be able to exist and blah, blah, blah. That's kind of all goofy because we're here. Let's just deal with it. If if those things hadn't come together like that, we wouldn't be alive and we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. So that's the way some you know, orthodox scientists who reject ID or just to think it's, you know, unscientific and we're not going to deal with it. That's the way they kind of solve this problem of, you know, stop navel gazing, stop looking around and being in awe at the improbability of the universe's design, its ability to support life. Because if it weren't that way, we wouldn't be here pontificating. And so Winston, you're saying an analogy you've seen is someone saying, okay, that'd be like if you were tied up standing in front of a firing squad, there's a whole line of guys, they all shoot and they all miss or their guns jam or whatever and you're still alive, you're going to think a miracle just happened. And and whether it's a miracle or not, certainly it would be a silly thing to say, let's stop wondering how that just happened because if it hadn't happened, you would be dead. So the only reason you're sitting here wondering how did I just survive that is because you did. And so that should end the inquiry right there. Clearly that would be a silly answer is what you're saying. And so hence, so it might not be that Winston at all are correct in what they're saying, but certainly this improbability and the specified nature of it is remarkable and demands further inquiry and don't just say, well, otherwise we wouldn't be alive to, to be you know, wondering why it happened. So let's move on. So now why don't we turn to your soul or your soul open. I don't want to say your soul paper. The, the paper you did on your own is what I'm trying to get. I'm not saying this is the only paper you did. So this is <laughs> called the dependency graph of life. Is this like your dissertation or is that not accurate? This is just... Um a uh, this is just published in a journal. My dissertation is just a sandwich of previous papers stapled together, so it's not very interesting on its own. Okay, but the dependency graph of life stuff isn't part of what your your dissertation no, the, was. The, oh, the, okay. The dependency graph of life is more recent. Oh, okay, great. All right, so let's see. I think the abstract here is actually more intelligible than the other one. It's funny, the intelligent design right. papers have unintelligible abstracts. Okay. So, no, this one's, this one, I think people will get what you're saying. So this, again, this is the dependency graph of life. It's Winston's uh, paper. He's the sole author. The hierarchical classification of life has been claimed as compelling evidence for universal common ancestry. However, research has uncovered much data, which is not congruent with the hierarchical pattern. Nevertheless, biological data resembles a nested hierarchy sufficiently well to require an explanation. 
While many defenders of intelligent design dispute common descent, no alternative account of the approximate nested hierarchy pattern has been widely adopted. We present the dependency graph hypothesis as an alternative explanation based on the technique used by software developers to reuse code among different software projects. This hypothesis postulates that different biological species share modules related by a dependency graph. We evaluate several predictions made by this model about both biological and synthetic data, finding them to be fulfilled. Okay, so a lot there. Maybe let's define some terms. What is the, uh, the nested hierarchy? What does that mean? Uh, so the idea is if we look at life forms, they seem to fairly naturally fit into a hierarchical classification. So you have, you know, animals. And animals, you probably learned in school, they like divide into mammals and birds and reptiles and whatever else. And you can mm. further divide mammals into different kinds of mammals and so on and so forth. So everything sort of divides into these subcategories over and over again. And that's what we call a hierarchical classification. And the argument is that's been made since the time of Darwin is the reason this is true is because it's simply tracing out the tree of life, that these different groups, they all correspond to some long extinct species now and everything descended from those species. And that's why these groups kind of share similarities to each other and they don't share similarities as much to other groups. And it sort of has this groups within groups feeling. Uh, and the argument is made basically going back to Darwin is, this theory explains this, and no other explanation has ever been put forward for why this is the case. Okay, let me stop you there. So even before Darwin came along, biologists, you know, they might not have had the exact modern taxonomy, but they, I don't even, do you know the history? Like, did they have like kingdoms and phyla and all that yeah, stuff? Was so that? I believe that the modern system of classification goes back to somebody named Linnaeus, and he's mm -hmm. pre-Darwin. Okay. Uh, he is what we would today call a creationist of some sort. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was the one who really came up with a hierarchical classification system that we have today. Incidentally, that's why I think it's so uh, such a cheap and false debating tactic when defenders of the orthodox will say stuff like, oh, biology rests on Darwinism. You took that away, it would all collapse. I was like, well, no, biology existed before Dar Darwin. You know, there was medicine and, you know, <laughs> anyway. Okay, so um, so they, they were, uh, let me put it to you this way. Somebody, couldn't somebody say, well, what are you talking about? Like, there's the Dewey Decimal System. I can in, arrange books in a hierarchical path. I could, in, you know, and in, in arrange economists in a hierarchical path. There's the Austrian school. There's this, there's that. There's the followers of Bumbavark. So what do you mean that life seems to fit this nested hierarchy? Can't we do that with anything? Right. Uh, and so it's true. Humans love hierarchy. And no matter what life looked like, humans would classify it hierarchically because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Uh the argument is that it fits a hierarchy too well for it to be random chance. Uh, so typically what they do when they try to defend this, they say, well, let's imagine that every species is completely independent. And if there were just sort of similarities were randomly distributed and say, you know, does it fit a hierarchy better than that? And they say basically various tests they've done. Yeah, it fits a hierarchy better than if it were just random data. Whereas they think, you know, if you were to just take books and try to classify them in the way they figure, you know, it probably wouldn't fit a hierarchy nearly so well. They don't tend to do a very good job of this particular argument, in my view, simply because what you think you would do is you would say, well, let's compare how well biology fits a hierarchy to how well books or economists or uh, mixed drinks or whatever it is fit a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
you know, I've never seen them actually do this. They always go for, let's compare it to, you know, if everything were completely random. And it's true. If, if you sort of randomly distributed similarities and differences between living things, they would not fit a hierarchy at all. You could still fit them in a hierarchy, but there'd be lots of things that don't fit really well. And so life fits better than that, but it's not clear that it actually fits mm-hmm. better enough compared to like books or other things. So that let, yeah, let me ask you. So when you say fits the, is the idea that, okay, um, what it means to fit the hierarchy is that there's some trait that is shared by everybody from this point below in the hierarchy and like that's the way you can get get to like smaller and smaller nested things within it. Is that uh, the idea? There'd be a few ways to try and quantify the similarity. Um, a simple thing would be just yeah, okay. If we count up the number of traits shared by a group, it increases as we're going down more and more. Whereas it'd be difficult to do that if you were classifying books, perhaps to find a trait that everybody in this. Uh, so, so this fascinates me, and I I hope this makes sense and isn't <laughs> obnoxious. But I'm trying to really get, like, why couldn't I say, okay, I'm going to classify books, and first of all, I'm going to separate them by color. There's the what is it, Roy G. What is it, seven of the colors in the spec? You know, the main colors. So that's the seven kingdoms. I'll call the seven colors. So all red books go in the red kingdom, and da 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 da. And then books that are, uh, you know, printed in English. And then, so then I'll do it by language. And then I'll do it by, and so I'll go through. So I could certainly do a nested hierarchy there, but is the issue that, oh, wait a minute though, Bob, there's books in English among all of your kingdoms. And so, yeah, yeah, you can arrange it, but then there's so much cross-fertilization or whatever term it would be that it's clear your hierarchies were somewhat arbitrary and it's not really like that all the red books really have something in Yeah, Is that kind of what's going on? That would be the idea. The idea, the argument you made, you know, you can pick different criteria and they Mm -hmm. will end up giving you a similar hierarchy. Um, That's, I think, less true than they like to portray. There are various things that don't quite fit that way, but it is at Mm -hmm. least somewhat true that you can look at different criteria and still come up with the same hierarchy. Okay, so that, all right, so... The idea then, so with the books thing, obviously, if I took 10 different people and said, hey, I want you to arrange all humankind's books in a hierarchy, <laughs> like they might have done my thing, but they might have done language first. They would say, okay, first there's the English kingdom and then the Hebrew, the whatever, you know, Polish kingdom and da, 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 da. And then they would have done colors at this next level because since those are kind of arbitrary. So showing clearly no two humans are going to arrange books the same way. But you're saying if they took a bunch of biologists who hadn't early, already learned it at school and so go look at the life forms and try to arrange them. They probably would put the blue whale in with humans because they're both mammals, even though a blue whale might, you know, seems like it's more like a fish. Yeah. Um, now there are certainly some cases where I think biologists disagree and there would be mm-hmm. questions. But I think broad scale looking at it, you would get a similar pers- hierarchy no matter who's looking at it. Okay. All right. So then what you're doing in this paper is you're saying, okay, there are some, so, so yeah, given that there's this decent approximation of a nested hierarchy, although it's not perfect. Right. And then the, the standard biologies, biologists have ways of talking about, well, convergent evolution or, you know, to, how to explain that kind of like my analogy with the books that even if you did it my way with the first by color, then by language, Oh, there actually would be a lot of blue books that also have English as well as red books that have English and so the English would be shared. So that looks like it wasn't just 
back in the day, all red books went one way and then they subsequently developed English that you'd realize, wait, so likewise too, there's certain things that, yeah, this is a mammal and this is something else over here that's not a mammal. And yet they both have this particular feature about them. And so, or maybe another way to put it, it's not the case that when you try to come up with rules about, well, what's true of all mammals, you might lay it down and then we realize, oh, except that one counter example, but we still say that's a mammal. Or, you know, oh yeah, although there's another thing that's not a mammal that does that too. And so to explain that, they have different mechanisms to explain. Things you can invoke to try and explain that kind of stuff. And so you're saying though that so what so people who like ID theorists who have rejected common descent, it's a bit tricky for them to explain. Okay, well then what you know I guess they just say oh well God made it that way and that obviously seems like a cop out to, and so you're coming up with a more rigorous way to explain what's going on here, and then you also think your way does double duty. Your thing explains it better. But it also explains if your theory is true as to what really was going on, it also as an offshoot would explain why someone looking at it from the Darwinian nested hierarchy thing would still, that would be better than chance. Yes. Whereas if all you're doing is say, well, God just made it that way, that kind of leads you to wonder, well, why did God design it to make it look like it was common descent, even though there wasn't? Is that, is that so you, you've come up with a way of. Yes, that's. Okay. All right, so I'll stop, and then why don't you take over with as much detail as you think? Much detail as I think your listeners, the reader can, yeah, can handle. <laughs> you optimize in terms of the detail versus understandability to the layperson. Right. So basically, um, my philosophy of life is: there's no problem that can't be solved by a proper application of computer science to it. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I looked at how computer programmers reuse code between different projects. Um, We have a joke in our world that in order to be a good computer programmer, you need to be lazy, impatient, and arrogant. Uh, In particular, the idea of laziness is that you should never write code that you can just reuse from somewhere else. And so, you know, if you need your program to download a file off the internet, you would have to be crazy to from scratch, write all the code necessary to do that. You're going to go find someone who's already written that code and plop it into your program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we do is we call these sort of units of codes modules. There are a few other terms that will stick to modules here where there's a collection of code and it has some purpose, whether that's download a file from the internet, compute trigonometric function, uh, whatever you might have, and you put those modules into your program and then you sort of package those all up to produce your final product. And basically, that's how all software development today is done. You collect your modules together, combining all the functionality you create with functionality other people have already created or maybe you previously created, and that produces your final idea. And so the first fundamental theory is that if um, if common design is true, and let me clarify what common design means, it's sort of a play on common descent. So common mm-hmm. descent says the similarities and differences of living things are due to being descended by a family tree. Uh, according to common design, the similarities and differences are due to having a common designer. There's a single or maybe potentially a team of designers working together, and that's why there's similarities, not because of common descent. So under my model of common design, different similar species have similarities because they share modules that they have these reuse of code modules the same way a programmer would. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of people have had that basic insight, right? It's, it's perhaps fairly obvious if you're thinking about it from the perspective of common design that he would, the designer would have reused elements of code in different things. So, yeah, we're not going to expect every time that God needed you know, a particular protein to carry oxygen in your blood, he designed a new one from scratch. That would be weird. He's going to reuse the one across different species of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the insight I had was that in the computer world, these modules actually have relationships with each other we call dependencies, which says you can't just use modules in any combination you want, but one module actually depend on another module. So if you have, for example, I mentioned the module that downloads a web page, that's going to depend on another module which knows how to make general connections over the Internet. And so it's going to build on that module to provide additional functionality. Or uh, an example I sometimes use, I talk about, you know, if you're building a house and you want to put, you know, a kitchen in your house, you can imagine there being a kitchen module. But that module is going to depend on a bunch of other stuff. You've got to have maybe a fridge module and a stove module and have the dependencies on things like an electricity module. And that's going to create a whole cascade of similarities by adding a kitchen module, not just to like other houses with kitchen, but any building that has a kitchen in it. And so you have this sort of relationship where one module depends on another, and that sort of constrains the kind of reuse you can have. And the fundamental idea I had was if you take a look at the tree of life, you've got this, you know, mammals divide into different kinds of mammals, which further divide and such. If you just reverse the direction, as it were, where instead of saying, you know, uh, the mammals sort of separated into two kinds of mammals, instead, the different kinds of mammals depend on the mammal module. So the reason that, you know, every mammal is an animal, for example, is because the mammal module depends on the animal module. And every animal is eukaryote because the animal module depends on the eukaryote module. And so you have these dependency relationships. So what happens is the whole tree of life becomes a dependency relation between these different modules. Now, the fundamental thing we expect then is that we wouldn't just have modules that correspond to our taxonomic category. We would have other modules that correspond to other things. So maybe there's a marine mammal module that is shared between the various species we know of marine mammals, which are not under the Darwinian account actually related to each other. They're actually, I think there's three different families of marine mammals, which are supposed to have separately transitioned to the sea or an echolocation module, which explains similarities we find between echolocating bats and some cetaceans that use echolocation. So my theory suggested, okay, maybe this explains why things look like common descent, because actually the whole tree of life is embedded in the dependency graph, but there should also be these other modules that we can kind of look for as well that would explain uh, other patterns that aren't really captured by common descent. Okay, so let me stop you there. So you're taking something that's straightforward from computer science where, where you're looking at two different programs and some of them, you know, use different modules and whatever, and you can map the programs that way. And you're applying that to biological organisms. And then you're saying it's, um, you're, you're guarding against, you're not merely just giving a different interpretation to the same thing because technically the, the dependency graph applied to life forms is not identical to what biologists would would say, although it's similar. Is that true? Yes. It sort of it goes beyond that and adds other 
modules besides what you'd find just by translating the tree of life into a dependency graph. Okay, so again, it's not merely that you're looking at the same thing and doing the same hierarchy and just you're giving a different philosophical spin to it. You are coming up with, and, and like echolocation is a good one. So the if in the standard Darwinian account, the fact that bats have echolocation and those other, I missed, what are the other things? Uh, well, uh, cetaceans, uh, dolphins. Okay. And, you know. It, it, it's not that they have a, a near, a recent ancestor, common ancestor. That's not that it had echolocation and they quit. It's that they independently, natural selection took them down and it happened upon echolocation through independent routes. That's the only way they can explain it. Yes. Whereas you can, you, the, your technique would just say, oh yeah, there's the echolocation module and they both used it. Yes. Okay. Okay, so you do that and then, so so what? You 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 can do it with your your modules and they do it their way, who cares? Or not who cares, but... Is is there a way you can? We'll get to the who cares in a minute, but <laughs> there's a way you independently can assess whether yours is like a better fit, right? So um, it wasn't enough just to come up with an idea of how to explain it. I wanted to say, can I actually test this to see is this actually a better fit to the explanation mm-hmm. than the current stand the standard Darwinian account? And so to to evaluate this, I used what's called Bayesian model selection. And I would love to go into detail on the math of it because I'm a math nerd, but I'm pretty sure that's not a good idea here. But at least do enough to show, like, the qualitatively. So I guess someone could say, oh, you could just add a million modules because I like how it, like, penalized you for additional complexity. Yes. So the basic idea of this is we could evaluate how well a tree fit and how well a dependency graph fit. But the problem is the dependency graph always fits better because it's more flexible. Uh, on the other hand, the tree is always going to be simpler because a, a tree is a simpler structure than a dependency graph. And so we have this problem of this trade-off between do you prefer the simpler theory or the theory that fits the data better? And Bayesian model selection is a principled way to evaluate that. And it works effectively by penalizing the more complicated model. And we do this particularly by we define a probability distribution over possible graphs. Um, And what that means is we assign for any conceivable graph that we can put there, we assign some probability that this is the graph. And what we do is instead of just calculating the fit, we sort of calculate what is the fit if we were to just pick a graph at random. And we sort of average that over all the probabilities of all the graphs. Um, and that tells us how well it fits to sort of a random graph. And in effect, that penalizes the graph by how complex it is. So we can't just postulate a really complex graph that fits really well because that would be highly penalized. So mm-hmm. it has to trade off being a better enough fit that it doesn't make it so complicated that it doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, unfortunately, this is a well-developed idea that is used of Bayesian model selection to do this in a principled way. Okay. So again, because it would almost be cheating. Like, yeah, of course you have more flexible. You can say the echolocation module, whereas the standard tree of life that they use in biology would have to, you know, force them into the different nested hierarchies and whatever. So you can explain things better, but then by adding a bunch of modules, you're getting penalized in a sense for adding more and more modules. And so what, given the scoring mechanism so that it's not cheating. I think the listener can guess where this is going. It turns out dun, 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 that your your <laughs> model wins. My model wins. My model wins uh, handily across 
I tested against nine different gene databases mm-hmm. uh, to see whether the distribution of gene families in different species works. And basically, by at least 10,000 bits, uh, my model wins. And that's a logarithmic. Uh, so each bit is a doubling. And so, like, typically you do something like you say, you know, 10 bits would be really decisive when you do this sort of thing. So getting 10,000 bits very decisively, it fits the dependency graph way, way better than it fit the tree of life. Mm-hmm. And so just to be clear, I mean, for details, the interested listeners can go to your paper, of course. But so to be clear, it's you you could have been wrong. In other words, it could have turned out against you. You went and looked at actual genetic information. It's not just that you are doing this philosophically or something. Like you really did go and I really set did this analyze the data from a lot of different databases to try and evaluate that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I should caveat. Yep. Uh, obviously, I have to make a lot of assumptions in doing anything like this. And I assume a fairly simple model of common descent. Uh, so one of the things you could complain is, oh, well, if you put a more complicated model of common descent with horizontal gene transfer and da, 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 da. This is really, I'm just introducing the idea to the world. And so I don't pretend I've totally proven that my model's correct. But at least the initial test, it shows quite a lot of promise. Yeah. Yeah, so this guy Doolittle, you were saying here, while Doolittle argues that the tree of life is a falsified hypothesis, he still argues that macroscopic life's fit to a hierarchy confirms evolutionary theory. So that actually sort of shocked me that then I went to look up to make sure I understood the context, but the the idea being that in a sense the standard Darwinian accounts acknowledges that yes, yeah, strictly speaking, the tree of life is falsified, and that's because they would say, well, because there's stuff like horizontal gene transfer and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. so they would say, if you look at bacteria, there's so much horizontal gene transfer that the sort of tree of life doesn't really make sense there. And I think that's probably also true for early life. Typically, they defend it when it comes to animals, uh, and because they figure animals, they don't have horizontal gene transfer, at least very much, and they're they're just less that way. So in my study, I actually only look at animals specifically for that reason. So I'm not looking at things which have a lot of horizontal gene transfer. Uh, Let me just make sure the listeners get in, or me too, make sure I'm understanding what's going on. So the, the standard thing of a tree of life and, you know, standard evolutionary accounts, it's like looking at your genealogy, like, oh, there was my grandparents. And so you can trace it back. And so if you're thinking of it in terms of like bacteria, oh, there's, you know, this bacterium here and it keeps, you know, reproducing and multiplying and has descendants down through the generations and the genes keep making copies. And then once in a while there's a mutation, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the bacterium up here that's right next to it and it's doing its own line. And so in the original way of thinking, the canonical way, those are completely hermetically sealed gene lines or, or, you know, lineages. But in reality, the bacteria are next to each other and they might actually swap some genes at some point. And so that clearly screws up that ability to just tell this nice story of descendants from, you know, a, this one ancestor. Is that yeah, the idea? Yeah. So it's okay. well studied that bacteria swap genes and do all kinds of weird stuff. Um, so that's why it's there. The same has not been established to be true over in more macroscopic forms of life. Okay. All right. So what would be next then in terms of, has there been any reaction from the Orthodox community to your work here on the dependency uh, graph of life? So I got some reaction to it. Uh, there was some level of, 
oh, wow, the intelligent design people actually have a mathematical model. This is impressive, uh, mm-hmm. which was gratifying. Um, they're, they haven't really, I think, engaged with it too much. Um, I think generally they've adopted a policy of intelligent design as a thing to be ignored in the hopes it'll go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, just to clarify, you know, this is common design, perhaps more than intelligent design. Not every intelligent design person would reject common sense, just right. to be clear on that. Uh, that there's, they would point to the things like at the end of the paper, I point out there's the limitations, right? I assume simple model, common descent. I'm assuming the gene libraries I'm looking at are reliable uh, and such. And so they would point basically the same limitations I pointed to and said, oh, we're going to ignore it because of these limitations. I'm hoping in future work to kind of lift some of those limitations to make the case stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really where the status of things is right now. Okay, yeah, and you just raised yourself a question I wanted to ask to clarify that someone like Michael Bay, he would he like not really have a dog in the fire, or would he actually be rooting for you to have come up short because then he would say, oh, gee, maybe common descent is wrong. Because again, strictly speaking, what you're showing is the theory of common descent. We we should have less reason to believe in it, right? That you're showing. Yes. Okay. The, what, the, like one of the standard things to support it, namely. Well, what this tree of life is exactly what we'd expect of the theory of common. And you're showing, well, no, this other thing fits. You can gr- group organisms under my hierarchical s- structure. Is it a hierarchy? Is dependency graph like a hierarchy? Yeah. Or that's the wrong word? Graph is not a hierarchy. Okay, um, so I should. Okay, great. Uh, is uh, it a taxonomy or is that not the right word either? <laughs> organization? Uh, it would be a classification system. It's not really a okay. classification system either. Okay. Well, it, it fits your. It fits the dependency system. graph better than it fits the higher yeah. structure. Okay, and so, so, so okay, well, yeah. Why don't we just sit back and say, okay, what? So, what is a regular biologist who maybe isn't even an atheist? Like they're just not very religious. They don't really, yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's something bigger than us. You know, who who can say? And they're just doing their data. You know, they're doing their experiments and whatever, and getting published on stuff. And then they read your paper. What are they supposed to do with that? Um. Well, my hope would be that it would open them to other ways of thinking about maybe common descent isn't the right explanation. Maybe there are other things that could be going on in here. Um, mm-hmm. I think that for most biologists, if you're like studying, like this is what this cell does, uh, the history probably doesn't matter a whole lot to you, whether it evolved mm-hmm. or something else. There are some things I think the people who hold to evolution, they have a tendency to think uh, if they don't know what something does, it can't be doing anything important. It's probably useless leftovers. So there's some amount of, of that kind of insight that might happen. But I think a lot of biology proceeds the same whether Darwin is true or not. Okay, yeah. Can I ask you on that? So there's this term junk DNA. Yeah. So what, is that, what does that phrase mean? When, when people say, oh, yeah, that's just the junk DNA in the human genome. What does that even mean? Um, so at least traditionally what it meant was this was DNA that didn't do anything useful. And it was sort of common argument for evolution was – Hey, there's DNA. It's not doing anything useful. You know, God wouldn't have put it there. Ergo, evolution must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, the story has gotten more complicated as we've discovered that uh, it seems less like the DNA didn't do anything and more like we didn't know what it did. Uh, and we've discovered for lots of cases, oh, this is actually doing something useful that we didn't know about. Uh, and there's still a lot we don't know about the DNA. So it's really dangerous to go around saying this doesn't do anything because it's really hard to establish Mm -hmm. whether a piece of DNA is doing nothing or not. 
so my finding is that argument is actually lessened quite a bit, um, that they're, it's not being made as much because I think a lot of people realize it's actually not very strong with more evidence of function being found in that. Okay. I guess the last thing, I know we're coming up here, I told you we'd try to go about this. Let me just ask you one more, if you don't mind. Um, what do you say, because I know when I dabble on intelligent design, I did it earlier in the Bob Murphy show. I'll put the episode, folks. I forget off the top of my head which one it is, but when I said ID, it was poorly titled. I said ID is a scientific theory. What I meant to say, what I should have said was, a common objection that says ID is unscientific is silly or something like that. You know, I didn't actually prove that it was scientific. I just ruled out like typical objection. Um, but even when I did that, I've, Winston, I've had Bible believing Christians sort of lecture me like, Bob, this is a fool's errand. You know why it's true. It's because you believe in Genesis and why are you spinning your wheels? These people aren't going to believe you, you know, th that kind of thing. So what, you know, do, do I'm wondering, Winston, do you ever get, pushback like that from other Christians, like wondering why are you wasting your talent doing this, you know, proving what you already know is to be tr true through, uh, through more reliable methods, namely reading the Bible? <laughs> uh, I don't think I have actually gotten... Oh, okay. Well, good, because I've gotten pushback. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, honestly, I do it because I find the questions interesting more than anything mm -hmm. else. Uh, but yeah, the people uh, I've interacted with have generally been from the Christian side, very positive. Like, oh, it's cool that you do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so again, just to sum up, then it's although you do believe in a God and who created things um, because of your religious upbringing, nonetheless, you do think, look, you can just use purely rational, empirical arguments to demonstrate that at the very least, the standard hypothesis that random mutation acted upon by blind natural selection with no intelligence involved, that that's really not a very good explanation for the life forms we see around us. Is yeah, that a fair? absolutely, I think. Um, no matter what your worldview, you should look at this evidence and think, mm -hmm. no, this, this Darwinian account is basically silly and intelligence is the best explanation. Okay, and then what, again, one last clarification that need not mean all organisms had completely different. Well, let, let me ask you that. Though. So, in your mind, if we if we turn the clock back, wh where did all these things? Like, do you think there were sixteen thousand different origins of life? That if we actually just could go back and look in time, or or do you like? Is it the six day account? Or I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot if if this is something. Because just to to get more, because like at Behe, I know I think he's thinking, oh yeah, there was this cell that emerged from the primordial soup, but God must have been really involved in having that happen. And then it, it proceeded. So superficially, it looked like, oh yeah, common descent, blah, blah, blah. But Behe would see, you know, yeah. an, or an orchestration, you know, a designer behind the scenes as it were. So I'm just wondering, like, do you even think of it like, like, are you imagining when you're saying it's not common descent? Right. What, so, is that, what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I do consider myself a creationist. I do believe that God created different forms of life and that those have continued on to the present. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think common descent is – I think it's very hard to think that's compatible with what Genesis indicates happened. Uh, I also think that scientifically it's probably not the best explanation. Okay. All right. Great. So you would push it further and say – it's not merely you think there's evidence of intelligent design. Your specific work showing quantitatively, it's not merely that there's an intelligence involved, but that 
the the actual theory of common descent at least doesn't fit your you know the, your assessment of the data would would say that to re, that that's probably not what's going on. Yes, I think there's there's a lot more work to be done in terms of developing mm-hmm. a proper alternative to common descent. I think that we're kind of behind on that side of the question, uh, but I think at the end of the day, that is the true case. Okay, great. Well, folks, uh, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 111. If you want to look for the links, I'll put Winston's uh, work up there, plus some of the other stuff we discussed. Uh, Thank you, Winston, for your time. This was a fascinating discussion. Thanks for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.